Welcome to Meta Talks. I'm Gabby, co-founder of Meta. We exist to improve the sustainability and accessibility of innovation. In this season of our podcast, we have some amazing discussions planned to help you build and run more sustainable businesses. We will also look at ecosystem improvement, education, diversity, and transformative innovation. As always, we want all episodes to not just be interesting, but also useful and practical. My co-founder Will and I will be your hosts for this season, and we'll be joined by great guests and members of our amazing Meta team. Welcome back to Meta Talks. I'm Will, I'm your co-host today, and this is the sixth episode of our second podcast season, and I'm joined by our sustainability and innovation lead, Heather. Today, we're chatting with Hampus Jakobsen, general partner at VC fund Pale Blue Dot. Prior to becoming a VC, Hampus was an angel investor with over 100 investments worldwide, and before that, founded and ran two startups. He is a MSc in computer science, loves cooking and reading fiction. Pale Blue Dot is an 87 million euro seed stage venture capital firm, which invests in climate tech startups that reduce and reverse the climate crisis and help us prepare for a new world. Pale Blue Dot is based in Malmo, Sweden, and invests in early stage companies in Europe and the US. Hampus, along with co-founders Joel Larsen and Heidi Lindvall, founded Pale Blue Dot in 2020 as three former entrepreneurs. They wanted to build a better venture capital fund that understood entrepreneurs and channeled capital into founders solving the biggest problem facing humanity, climate change. Climate change is the biggest challenge facing humankind right now, and it's also the most significant opportunity for new thinking and where we think the best entrepreneurs are building. So Hampus, can you give us a quick introduction to yourself and the work that you do at Pale Blue Dot? Yeah, so the quick introduction to me, I think is, I'm trying to be as quick as possible in this one, but originally I, I come from a family where my two parents are scientists and my two oldest brothers are abstract mathematicians. My third oldest brother is a truck driver. So I kind of grew up in a family where every other family member except my truck driving brother was essentially trying to figure out a way to transport their brains around uh, by using something called bodies. So a very kind of abstract uh, world of, of working and thinking. And I was able to trick my siblings and my parents when I was a kid that if they got me a computer, I could do simulations for them and help them with their work. And I was very glad that they got me an Amiga because that's the best simulation computer you ever can buy if you want to do Monte Carlo simulations, also known as the game computer I wanted at the time. Uh, so then I got to play computer games and essentially sweat equity my way to buying computer games by doing different kind of Monte Carlo simulations and stuff for my family. And then completely randomly from that, I, well, continued life like that just by trying to kind of hack my way around. I think you have, if you have kind of five parents as I do, you're very, very obsessed by what makes people tick. So I was extremely obsessed with what, what makes a person do something and why. And then I started being really interested in psychology and philosophy, anthropology, sociology, but then really, really didn't like the sciences because they were very judgmental and very kind of observational. And then I did the only natural thing to do for a geeky person. So I did computer science and did machine learning and human simulation as like my degree, because that seems like the most sane thing to do. And during that period, I started a company by mistake because I built an arts exhibition with a friend. And then somebody came in and saw that and said, wow, this is super interesting. We'll pay you $50,000 if you want to build it for us in Stockholm. And we did that. 
And we're like, yeah, we need a company because if we don't have a company, we're just going to pay VAT for all the, like we need to deduct the VAT because the only thing you wanted, we wanted was of course to buy computers, naturally. That was the business plan. Do project, buy computers, deduct VAT, have fun was the business plan of the company. And then during that company, what happened is Sony acquired Ericsson or merged with Ericsson and they wanted to build a PlayStation phone. So like a very kind of graphic vivid phone back in 2001. And the headache was that the Swedish part of Ericsson or the Swedish part of the company, I don't know if you remember your phones from 2001, but they were like small microwave ovens. That was like the experience you had with them. And the Japanese people then wanted to build this PlayStation device. So what happened after a couple of months on that one is they realized they would never make it. And they called us completely randomly because one of them was our high school friends and said, can you get me out of the situation? Because I'm responsible for fixing this. And because we didn't want to do it, we said, sure, we can do it. But then you have to pay us $50,000. Because, you know, that's just, a, that's just a ludicrously high amount that we've never seen anything like it. And he was like, uh, oh, okay, okay. Like, do you mean per phone or what do you mean? Like, yes, per phone. And he was like, okay, okay, great. Do you want, and you want like consultancy money on top of that? Yep, yep. We're just like, we just want to say no, right? We just want to like, no, we don't want to do it, right? We don't want to say no. So he came back with a big boss like a couple of days later. It's like, yes, yeah, so we've got a, like an agreement for you. We'll pay you 50,000 per unique phone model and then this and this and that. And we're like, how do we say no now? So like, let's do one of these. And then that thing turned in from that, how do we say no to this, to 180 people globally. And we shipped in 12, 13, 14% of all the world's phones from Samsung, Synerx, and Motorola, Nokia, and many others. And then ended up designing Android for Google and many other crazy things. And then from that, suddenly BlackBerry called us and said, hey, we want to acquire you. And we just felt like, I don't think they're going to acquire us because this is just such a ludicrous thing to acquire a company like us without an adventure funding, right? We scale this company completely organically and crazily. And then I flew to Toronto and met them and really fell in love with them during that day. And then they said, hey, can we you know, buy the company for $150 million? And like, we only incorporate you. And we're like, this is never going to happen. So like, we kind of, you know, we kind of asked stupid all the time. We kind of said, sure. And then that's what they did six weeks later. And then during that transition, as like when I was a kid, I kind of thought that deep science and deep thinking is how you change the world. Because that was like all my idols and my family members, right? And truck driving probably changed the world as well. And then, then I had... 10, 12 years of thinking that getting shit done, entrepreneurship and coding changed the world. And then suddenly I catapulted into BlackBerry. And at the day when they, we were signing the, the agreement of being acquired by them, the CEO asked me, hey, do you want to run M&A for me? And I was like, M&A? You mean acquire companies? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I hate finance. I'm literally an anti-capitalist. I don't think that I'm the best person doing this for you. And he was like, I think you're going to be really good at it. Or you're going to be the general manager of the new user interface unit and you're going to have 200 people reporting to you. And I was like, As that, that's my like worst thing that's going to happen in my life. He was like, yes. So like, you're blackmailing me into running M&A for you. It's like, you can call it blackmail. Okay, shit. So then I said, okay. And that was great because then it catapulted me into realizing that capitalism is a very, diff- like not really working system, but you can actually change the world with capital. So like it suddenly made me realize that finance isn't inherently evil and it could actually be useful. And then I started, during that period, I also started angel investing and angel investing in a lot of companies and really started really loving helping entrepreneurs. Because again, I'm not really good at capital. I'm really good at trying to help people. And that's what I enjoy. And then from that, invest in a lot of companies, worked at a couple of funds. And then in 2019, really realized that what if we could do the craziest shit ever, which would be like, we use the system that the world has built, capitalism. We use venture funding and startups, which is a great way of getting shit done and entrepreneurship and everything to work. But we do it with something that the world actually needs. And I think that the world really needs a couple of things. We need to fix stuff like mental illness. We need to fix inequality. We need to fix the trust issues in, in institutions and other people. But we also need to fix climate change. And some of these problems feel like very common good problems, and it's very hard to figure them out. And some of these problems 
feel like they actually could be kind of figured out. And then Heidi Newell and I started prototyping and talking about Probidot in 2019 and then started the fund in 2020. And that's two years ago. And we've been investing ever since happily together. How to unpack all of that? <laughs> All of the entire time, we're both laughing so uncontrollably. <laughs> you just see our faces. It's such an interesting background. I think from the tale of it, I love that it's doing crazy shit to change the world is basically the, the start of Pale Blue Dot, right? And how you talk about fixing and changing inequality and trust issues and climate change. It's like really all of that just feeds into what is sustainability, right? So it's, you know, all of that is, is sustainability. So can we just dive a little bit more into like the inspiration, the joint inspiration between you and your co-founders to start Pebbly Dot? So diving into that, that doing that crazy shit. Yeah, I think that the interesting thing and one thing I really love about Heidi and Ewell is that we're very different. Like we're... I think that if you go to, I mean, maybe we're de very different, but we're from the same cohort. I think if you go to an awesome, you know, Chinese restaurant, you're going to say if you're a complete foreigner, you would say, oh, it's Chinese food. But if you actually understand Chinese food, you're like, this is very different. They have both like from the region of Shanghai and from the region of Beijing. And I think that, of course, somebody looks outside, they're going to say, oh, they're all like, they do this in the same style. But if you actually get to know us, you realize we're very different. And I think that's the really the power of how we think and why we want to do what we do. And the inspiration was actually... A, essentially an amalgamation of two things. One was that we were very, very tired of venture. After I've done lots of angel investments and helped quite a lot of people raise money and try to fix what they do and like build companies and try to steer people away from starting companies and realizing this, you should probably start a nonprofit or you should start this or that and really try to figure that out. And the, I mean, the venture system is very much, it is a, it's a hammer looking for a nail kind of world. And also the problem is like, if you ask a lot of VCs, they're going to tell you that, oh, it's pattern recognition. Like it's like that you just end up saying, oh, what, what medium in that deal is oh, it's pattern recognition. And pattern recognition is a shitty way of saying you do what we've always done before. Because that's what pattern is. And I think the problem is then you really get a world which has a very low diversity and you essentially invest in people that are like, why can we find the next Mark Zuckerberg who's trying to build kind of online silly site that allows you to spy on, you know, your college dorm girls and vote if they're hot or not. And then that thing spins out of control and topples democracy. It feels like, is that what you want to do? And of course, you like you made billions for a lot of people in that process, but it just feels like it doesn't really feel that what you wanted. And I think that the problem with it is that the hammer doesn't care about anything except that it makes money at the end. And I think that really worried us. And we had seen a lot of times in different ways. And Heidi Newell also invested through a microphone they built. So we really think we talked quite a lot about like how we create a more diverse and inclusive world. And not only about who you pick from, like who gets to do companies, but also like if you have other kinds of problems being solved. But I was on stage many years ago and an awesome female VC said it's the best thing ever. And so she said it so well, where she said, what I get tired from this group of people that just pitched is that everybody's trying to solve a problem where guys had a problem within college and they see those are real problems. Like, and then you start to think about it and realize, oh, food delivery services. Yeah, exactly. Like Uber and those. Exactly. And you start realizing all of these things where you're like, what your parents did for you when you were a kid. And now we're just trying to replace them with startups. And it's just like, oh my God, is that actually like the right way to do it? So we kind of had that discussion quite a lot at Pilbudot, before Pilbudot. And it was like, what problems do you want to solve? And then the other problem is like how you want to solve them. So we really, we really loved when we worked with like some funds we liked or some angels we liked who were very sincere and very serious. So sincere as in like they actually cared about the people and they actually cared about the output. But also very serious that they actually did their homework. So they came to the meeting, they had, you know, they knew what the founders did and they knew what the product did. And if they didn't, they were fine with saying, I actually don't know how this works. Whereas most don't. 
because like you don't and i think that everybody we can all blame it we can just say you don't really have the time it's really tricky uh, and then, then the fourth and last thing is that we really want like we really frustrated that very few people try to look at it from the founder's perspective to think about what how, what is it like and i think that then the easiest thing for most vcs or they when you say that they think we're talking about equity and valuations it's like yeah, how much do they own but the problem is not how much you own but how your life looks how hard are you pushed to do stuff and like 99.9999% of your personal wealth and livelihood is tied to this company, which also is your reputation and your identity. And that's not a very healthy situation. So like we really talked about this quite a lot, the three of us, and then said, why don't we do a fund that had those as a core, but then we worked with a topic that you could get up every day and do. So we started more in the how than the what. And then the, the dream when we started talking about this, what if we could work with an area that we, you know, you would meet awesome people and you would really get excited. And there are great companies on the planet that do anything from like file sharing to chat services and stuff. But there are times when you just, you know, your excitement level can be just so high for file sharing. But then you start thinking about what if we could create a better world, you know, anything from mental illness to suffering carbon from the sky. And we're like, that would be the thing. We would create a fund that only does that. And then we said, the only way we believe somebody could build a fund in, in this day and age, 2022, is that you'd build either the largest, biggest, baddest ass branded fund, and then you raise a couple of billion, then you like you build the brand branding agency. People do this all the time, right? That's what one kind of fund. Or you're the closest to the market the fund. You're the, you know, you're the best fund in Bavaria, or whatever. And you like you meet all the founders before they even think about starting a company. You're like cl- so close to the metal that it hurts. Or you're vertically very, very niche, and you like you do one thing and you do only one thing well, and then you become a specialist. You're like people come to you because like they want to work with you. And we just felt we're not going to be the biggest, baddest because that's not us. And very niche-wise, then we have to be in an area where we're going to be close to that metal or travel like crazy. And then we said, we think that we actually could be that specialist fund and select an area we're super special in. And then we realized that all three of us had worked one or another or been very, very interested in different climate questions for quite a long time. And Yul and Heidi and I, all from different perspectives. Heidi from like humanitarian aid perspective, you from like just a personal, like no flying, sailing to places, what to eat and like very kind of um, personal austerity. And myself from a like just a science perspective, I'm just super fascinated about some of the science. So we just talked about it a lot and realized we should do a climate fund. And none of us are climatologists or anything like that, but we just have a huge passion for it. And as if we started a startup, we just said, okay, let's just read up on it and let's hack it. So I built a climate conference in 2019 where we just brought together the smartest people and started talking about it. And we said, that is like, that if we can, like, if we can fake it, then we can make it. And that's kind of what we did. So then when we started fundraising, we stopped faking and saying, okay, now we have to actually flip to actually making and actually talk to founders and talk to investors and others and just like figure out if we can do what we're doing. And I think what we really, what I'm super proud of is that and actually pride is like one of the key words for us. Like when we're asking ourselves, should we do A or B? We always ask ourselves, if this comes out completely transparently, are we going to be proud about this in 10 years? And that's like one of the most important tenets of how we do stuff. And I think then we sort of ask, and then, and sorry, back to what I said, it's like something we're very proud of is that we're super, super happy whenever we do founder meetups and just the electricity and the energy in the room, in the virtual room sometimes, with our founders and just feeling how much they love meeting each other because they just realize we're all working on the same thing, but of course in very different ways, right? And we're all like super nice people. And I love it whenever a huge fund says, hey, I want to like talk to, like I essentially want to talk to all your portfolio companies and they go through and try to talk to all of them. And then we talk to them after two or three weeks and they said, I don't talk to six of your, of your founders and damn, they're nice people. They're really awesome people. I mean, they're smart, but also they're super nice, right? 
And I just feel so proud. It's like these people are just so nice people. I'm really, really happy we can empower them. And I'm really happy that we're not cutting corners. We're not saying let's invest in nice people that maybe could have a shot. We're investing in people that we wish we were. And that feels so awesome. Amazing. I think we're going to struggle to keep this a succinct conversation because there are just so many tangents that we can go off on. We'll kind of come back to some of the stuff that you were talking about in kind of later themes or topics, but interesting to kind of hear about the mechanics of your experience as a team of raising this fund. Because obviously we've had a couple of years of a huge amount of capital kind of coming into venture. We've had lots of kind of later stage money starting to get excited about the seed stage, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of touched on Yol and Heidi doing a micro fund and you doing lots of angel investments, but what was the process for you as a team like mechanically to create your, or go out and raise your 87 million euro fund? What does that look like for a future fund? There's a different question what it is for future funds of Pilbara Doth and versus what it was to raise fund one. I think raising fund one, I think raising fund two, three, and raising fund after four are like three completely different things. Like it has almost nothing to do with each other. Raising fund one is something you have to will into existence. It is like, you just have to do whatever it takes. And I think that, and I don't mean that in the cool way, but I just mean like, you actually have to, one of the things we did is, it's very easy to think that you go to the people who usually invest in funds. The problem is like, if you go to them, they're inundated by people who do funds and they know what they're talking about, right? So I think we would have raised fund one slightly different than we did because we did a lot of stupid stuff. But I think it's like what we did is that, so we started in October 2019, and we started by two parallel tracks. One is you talk to really big investors in funds and slowly had long structural conversations with them about how we were thinking, what we think was great in the market, and all of the things that just rationally is like what a great banker tells you. Like we talked about the arbitrage in the industry and the opportunity for climate and how much money was going to invested and blah, 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 blah. A lot of stuff, which is like, it makes sense but if you start asking the real questions in venture, it's usually how do you find the people and how do you get to invest in them? Like there's really no logic that gets you to win in pre-seed and seed. Like you might win with like just spreadsheeting the shit out of stuff, but then you have to be in B rounds and later. Because in the beginning, there's no spreadsheet. It's two people in a shed. So I think that we had one track, which talking to people, which was great because they asked us questions that we were very structural questions. And then the other track we talked to is we talked to essentially entrepreneurs, like super successful entrepreneurs and angel investors and said, we're doing this fund. Do you want to join us with a small ticket? And then what happened in that process, we just described what we wanted and like what kind of companies. And then the great thing is because they were great entrepreneurs and great investors, they worked like we did. Like they, I'm not saying we're great entrepreneurs or great investors, but I meant what happened is their minds were attuned to what we liked. So like when we talked about a founder, they were like, oh, I love people like that. That's super exciting. Oh, that's a super exciting way of solving the problem. They didn't ask about financial models. They asked about like, what problem are they solving? How are they solving it? And that was something that we had done for 10 plus years. So we were great at describing like this company and like the, the how that worked and how, what the problem was and stuff like that. So we got a lot of people excited and said, yeah, if you do a fund, I'd love to do it. And those two parallels in parallel made us like to the point where we actually could get a first closing together. So essentially, we had just a huge spreadsheet with people who said, if you do a fund, I'd love to join it. And then we had big institutions who said, hey, like, you know, we have this rational way of thinking about it, yada, yada, yada. But we all know, like we all know, at least, uh, that people are people, right? So at the end of the day, if you have somebody who's a super rational person, if you tell them that the Supercell founder and the Unity founder and the Zendesk founder and you know, the whatever, you just tell them a lot of like awesome people who are investing. These people are like, whoa, we're going to look so stupid if we're not doing this. 
So they're leaning quite further. And then when we answer stupidly to kind of a very structured question, these people lean in and say, I think you want 50% in reserves. And we're like, ah, why? And then they explain it to you because they want you to do this fund, right? And I think that, I think what we end up winning with a lot is our combination of sincerity and seriousness. And I think that we tend to ask people a lot of questions. So when we started raising the fund, actually, we started interviewing a lot of CFOs of funds. Because if you ask GPs, like investors at funds, they actually, like, some of them know what it is to raise a fund, but it's the people who were like the original gangsters who know that. Most people who work at a fund, they've never been there, right? And when they're a certain size, you don't even, like, you go around, you meet some people, but it's mostly have a fundraising team, right? But we realized if you talk to the CFOs of funds, they actually know how, what actually works mechanically in a fund. So it was an amazing experience when you talk to these people about like, what do you wish if you designed a fund, new fund from scratch, how we do it? And some of these CFOs, they were just like, let me tell you what I would do if I was if I were in power. And some of the things they told us were like super, super smart, structurally, mechanically about to build a fund. We realized what was good about it. We told that to some of the investor, bigger investors we talked to, and we said like, we would probably do this. I'm like, how do you figure that out? Oh, we talked to these CFOs. They were like, oh shit, are you like doing your homework? And I realized most people raising funds, at least when we did it, didn't really do that. And I think maybe because, as you said, there was an excess capital. So people came in and was like, we're doing a fund, and I used to work at these three funds, so then let's go, right? And they got money. But then they usually, what I think we did, because we had, we thought from the beginning, this is going to be really hard, we just prepared as much as we could. Strange enough, that made people really impressed. So I think that was, it was one of those things where we just had a lot of conversations, asked a lot of questions, and then finally, like, the catch-up effect happened. And the split between institutional investors and kind of angels and the extended entrepreneur network, did you end up kind of raising it from both or is it a kind of a skew to one way? So there's the 70, 70 investors in the fund, seven zero, and I think 50 are entrepreneurs, angels kind of level, and 20 are family offices and institutions. And you probably could even say it's probably like even 60-10 if you start thinking about who those family offices are, because you're realizing that is a family office of a person who built the company. It's just a person built the company 40 years ago. But if you look at the amount of capital, the 10 that actually, the 10 that are the big ones, the, the big names, so to say, not the people, I mean, but the, like the institutionals, they, of course, put in 90% of the money. Yeah, there's a whole, and I suspect that'll be a different conversation, but a whole different conversation around de- democratization of venture that I think is becoming really interesting. We probably don't have time for that. On that, I think one of the biggest headaches I see is that I think that 100 years ago, we had a women's suffrage movement that really talked about how to make sure that women can also vote. I think the thing is that, for me at least, democracy is super important. I think we've got to make sure that people can vote. But most of the voting now currently today happens with money. And the problem is that wealth is extremely unequally distributed, which means that we need a new suffrage movement. We need to talk about inclusivity on voting on some on not just democratic votes, but actually with financial votes. And that's something that most people don't even want to talk about. Very topical with what's going on at the moment. But yeah, Heather, I'm not going to wade into this because we will go completely off topic. So over to you. No, that's fine. So just want to follow on to some of this. I mean, and you also said earlier something like they don't care about anything, but if they make money at the end. So what more do you think climate VCs or founders or climate tech as an ecosystem can do to accelerate the sector? And following on from that, what recommendations or tips can you give other investors who aren't necessarily climate VCs on becoming more responsible, climate-minded investors? First of all, I think that I, don't th- I think actually people are, in- I think people are inherently good. I think that's a very complicated statement because I think that sometimes you can really doubt that or I can really doubt that. 
Uh, but I think the problem is like the system we live in and the system we're designed for, like if you're a venture fund or if you're an investor, you will be measured on your output. Like nobody cares how sincere you were when you did it. Like as long as there's no New York Times article about how evil you were or how evil the company were, you're fine. Like it's really complicated to do that in a good way, like to actually incentivize people to do good. And the problem is like when you actually want to incentivize people in doing good, it ends up being really crappy because then you, the person who gives incentives, how do you create an incentive system that, so like, for example, we wouldn't take any money, neither from oil states, nor from people who said, this is exactly what good means. So we didn't take any money from people who were actually really good people who said, this is the one that kind of, the, we want to report carbon metrics. We're like, I'm sorry, we're not sure that it's going to be carbon. So we're not going to be able to do this. And I think that's the problem is like, how do you, like, how do you build a system where you say, we want you to be nice? Both of us know what it's like, you know, it's kind of like conversation about porn in the U.S. Senate. It's like we all know what it is when we see it. And we all know what nice is when we see it. It's just very hard to define. And I think the problem is how do you incentivize something where we all know what it means, but you can't really define it? So it is the promise. It's a system problem, as many of the really nasty problems. So I would say like, so first of all, I don't think people are evil. And I really don't think I think most investors, when you sit down with them, they're actually super nice people. And they just want to be with their family and like be nice to people. But they know they will get zero incentive doing that or, or incentivized to that. So but I say, like, if you want to do climate investing, I think that they're one of the things to think about, at least for me, what's worked for the best when I talk to people and I think about it myself is really thinking about going back to that, what would you be proud to do? There are plenty of companies, they're essentially like you could look at it, they're like, probably three kinds of companies on the scale. So the one company, which is actually pretty bad for the planet. I mean, it's not the worst companies. It's just like, it's probably pretty bad. So like I would put Instagram in that category, for example. It's like, it's probably pretty bad. We can all come up with use cases where Instagram is actually fairly good and we've all had some great Instagram experiences, but you can come up with like an umpteen experience where it's fairly bad. And the way it's like, it ways triggers people is, is making the world a worse place. We can all pretend that they're like, anytime you see that people create this great straw man of like a great use case for it. But I think it's clear that you can put up with quite a lot of shit use cases. So those I think are like from like slightly bad to like really evil shit. And then I think the next level is you have these that are net neutral. You have something which is like, yeah, like I guess it's okay, right? And then you have companies that actually move the, move the world in a better direction. And the headache is like, if you're an investor and you want to be a quote unquote like responsible investor, what most people do, and like what the public markets do, is they just say, we're not going to invest in the evil shit. So we're going to say, we're going to invest in neutral and good. And I think what you should do, if you want to say, no, 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 actually, I want to be a sustainability investor or climate investor or whatever you want to call it, planet positive investor, you should say, no, no, I only want to invest in stuff that brings the world to a better place. And I think if you have that mentality, then there are quite a lot of stuff that you start asking yourself, do we need that thing? And I think that there's some edge cases that are really, really, really complicated. Like we've had a lot of conversations internally. For example, luxury goods is really complicated. You look at stuff like, okay, you have whatever, you have like amazing, super high quality leather made of whatever, fish or something. And you're just like, this is great because it's no longer cows and da-da-da-da, that's great. But they're like, okay, so first of all, why would we kill fish? And secondly, do you need Louis Vuitton bags? And I think then it becomes really complicated because I think if you, it like... If you start saying, no, 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 but the world is buying Louis Vuitton bags. So like we need to replace this product with another product. That's like when we've had the most interesting conversation internally, where we say, do we actually need that? And that's, I would say those conversations have been long and super, super interesting. And those have been some of the best moments here internally. We had an amazing company with two founders we completely love that made a chocolate, really, really amazing chocolate out of a 
the waste stream, a super common product they could use. It was really great. It would scale really amazingly. The chocolate was really great. The headache we found was that chocolate is one of those things where the global north colonized the global south and forced the global south to create coffee and chocolate and palm oil and other things and bought all the produce and like ran the land and, you know, exploited as much as they could. And then now, 100 years later, or 50 years later, people are coming and saying, oh, that's an evil product. We should pull out of it as quickly as possible. The problem is like 100 million people living on that. And I think we should get out of palm oil. Uh, I think we should grow coffee and cocoa more sustainably. But I have a bit of a hard time when venture capitalists and other kind of finance is acting as like colonizers of the 21st century, where we're just like, I mean, this is what the East India Company did, right? Like you called it a company, but you actually invaded a country. And I think that's the thing of fear I have. And that's hard. Like the conversation we had internally about that company is really hard, especially as in Heidi is totally addicted to chocolate. Chocolate is like my kryptonite. So like we were just having these conversations where like, we want to be able to eat chocolate in the future. How do we handle this? And it's like, do we want to eat chocolate where we exploit people and, you know, dry out the land? No. And then we end up not investing because we just couldn't be comfortable with it. We just like, and I think for us, at least the best test is usually like you're on stage at this huge event, all the cameras directed to you. And it says, you invest in this cocoa company. And there are the, like 100 million people unemployed and protesting on the streets of Guatemala. Obviously not 100 million people in Guatemala, but you know what I mean? And like, what do you say to that? And like, if we just say, oh, it's like the system, blah, blah, blah. It's not our fault. People should have worked with UBI. Like, that's just not okay. I think that the, the problem is like when you want to do good, you just like the headache I have and the, what the thing I'm trying to help a lot of our founders with is the second you say we're trying to be good people, everybody puts you to a much, much, much higher standard to a degree which is completely mentally destructive. So we're really wary about saying stuff externally while we're thinking. So we have a lot of conversations where it's like, we don't want to do that. We wouldn't be proud of it. And then we say like, and then Georgia, our wonderful marketing comms person can say, oh, we should write a blog post about that. And that's a great idea. But then we realize, we don't want to say that because if we say that, like within the coming 10 years, we're going to do something which actually breaks that rule we just said on this case. We're still proud of it, but like you could see something. <sighs> Shit, how do we do this? But the way we're thinking about it a lot of times is like when we're thinking about what we communicate externally is thinking, what do we think other people can learn from? So not like where could we brag that we did something smart, but more like this was a very hard conversation and how do we do it? Or we just did this process to fix this problem. We're not sure we fixed it, but this is how we did it. And please give us input. So we're trying to do that a lot. So we open source a lot of our research. Whenever we invest in a company, as soon as the company is okay with it, we publish a blog post explaining why we invested and where we think that works. Some of our internal work with our hiring practices and uh, parental leave practices, we try to publish. It's really hard though, because like you always end up having people who troll you afterwards and say, oh, you could have done this, you could have done that. We're like, yeah, I mean, please help out. <laughs> and I think that at the end of the day, one of my favorite writings in the world is The Man in the Arena. And probably should today we should be called The Person in the Arena. But it's really like, don't shit on the person who's trying hard, but just try to help out instead, right? So it is hard to say you want to do stuff the right way because people can always find something you're doing wrong. And I think the way we found it internally is like we talk to each other and then we say, would you be proud of doing this? Not like anything else. So our, even our voting process has this. Like we essentially have, we have four levels of votes. Hell no, no, yes, and hell yes. And whatever we meet a company, if any single one of us is hell yes, and nobody's hell no, go do the deal. Hell no means, no, I think this is actually bad for the world, or I would be really scared, scared if we do this shit, or this person that is really toxic, we're investing, and that could destroy the whole thing. But we've had a couple of companies where one person said hell yes, and the other two said no. And we do the company, and then we disagree and commit.
So after we invested, we love those founders, we love that company, and we're going to help them. But the thing is that until that point, we really want friction to be a guiding light. So we want to be able to argue and wrestle and talk about everything. And sometimes we've actually been really afraid of even having interns in because when you have people who don't see how that process looks between the three of us, it looks like we're going to try to kill each other. It looks like, I don't know how you the story about the Danish band Aqua, but there's a Danish band called Aqua and the manager of Aqua was a British guy and he stood outside the studio and looking in when the Aqua people were in the studio between two, between two recordings. And then he came in and said, I'm sorry, um, is everything all right? It's like, oh, you, you seem to be arguing. And they were like, what are you talking about? We're arguing, we're ready to play the next song. And he was like, oh, okay, okay. And then he walked out again. And then the mixer guy was like, they're arguing again, they're arguing again, you got to go in. And he was like, I'm sorry, you seem to be fighting a lot. And like, okay, I got to tell you, have you never heard Danish? This is how it looks when we, how, when we talk, okay? And that's kind of how it looks when you listen to us internally. It's, it looks like and sounds like we're trying to kill each other. But it's just like us trying to figure out, do you actually mean that? Or would you be proud of that? So we've had some headache with how to make that process not sound like we're like aqua. Awesome. You've kind of covered it already, but in terms of other emerging fund managers or just entrepreneurs or people interested in the space, have you got any kind of thoughts or tips around kind of learning more about either investing in or just the climate tech ecosystem as a whole, given it's still relatively nascent? The tricky thing is like, if you want to start a company, I think that it, I always find that the best, the blocker for most people is like, you think about climate and you think about sucking down carbon from the sky or creating biofuels. Like, it's like, you're, you just, you read an article and you're like, okay, so airplanes are bad. We have to replace them. We have to make electric airplanes or some biofuel or transport people by maglev trains. Why did I do my thesis in sociology? Like, how can I do anything right? And I think the solution is always like, hey, you're probably really smart and you're probably really good at just getting shit done. So go and interview people and try to figure something out. So I love when people contact us and they say, hey, I just quit my job. I worked at this company before. And you look at them, oh, shit, this is still a person. And now I'm just trying to understand HVACs and like HVAC, heating, ventilation, cooling. And I love it, the fact that these people are just talking about HVAC as if it's a normal word. And you're like, okay, what have you done? And then they send you a Notion file or a Google Doc or whatever. And like with everybody they interviewed, and they've interviewed like hundreds of people and there are like hundreds of articles. And like, oh my God, we got to talk to these people. And then when you talk to them, they have no background whatsoever Like in this. They, they don't know anything about how a heating element works. But the thing is, we're living in an age right now where you go on YouTube and listen to five podcasts, and then you know a lot about HVAC. And it's pretty cool. So I would say like that, that's the cool thing is if you want to build something, look at a problem you think is a problem. And then the rules for me are two. One, can you find a solution which actually is relevant and interesting? And that usually comes from you understanding the problem. And number two, does it fit venture? And the way venture works is that you have to make something that you can propel and accelerate quickly with capital and not buy a lot of hardware for that capital. So sometimes you come in and it's like, we want to fix HVAC. And then the first idea would be, of course, can you actually build heat and ventilation cooling elements that don't require energy or something? But now, even if you're trying that thing, you actually need to build hardware, which is better. And that's something that venture really hates. So the way to solve it is usually you ask yourself, what is the software approach or the finance approach or whatever, which actually fits venture? And we've been so impressed by some of the people we meet who tackle some of the gnarliest CapEx heavy things ever, but they do it through a way where they realize that, no, we don't need $400 million to build a plant. We're actually figured out a kind of a smart, agile way of doing this. And I think that's really, really exciting. And the same thing I would say if you're investing in climate, if you just start talking to people, what are bad problems or what are things? And then you start interviewing people. Like some of the investments we've done, we've done in a very funny manner. We've been like, we have a conversation about like sustainable fashion. 
And then we just start interviewing a lot of people about sustainable fashion. And then we just write a lot about sustainable fashion internally. And then we find a theme where like, what if you could do this? What if you could rent your clothes or whatever? And we just interview everybody who does that. And then sometimes we end up writing an article internally, which is like, this doesn't really work. Or this is why it doesn't work. And then sometimes in the middle of that process, we meet somebody. And we're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. You actually figured it out. So a bunch of the investments we've done have been exactly that. We've actually actually been journalists. We've just tried to figure out how it works and what works. And I think that what you do as an investor, if you're an early stage investor, is you're really good at understanding people. And the other part of understanding, like, you know, how do you make steel? Like, I, we invested in a steel company two months ago. And I just listened to all the steel podcasts. And then the first question you would ask yourself, what do you mean steel podcasts? And you're like, of course, there are podcasts for steel making. There are quite a lot of them, actually. So I just listened to a shit ton of steel podcasts and just try to figure out how you make steel. And in the meantime, I talked to the entrepreneur and try to figure out them. And it was awesome about it. Like my job when I talked to them, I try to get them to be able to explain to me how to make steel and, you know, how the product will work. Because my thought is like, if these people can't explain to me, who's a total noob on steel making, they can't explain it to anyone else. And if they can't explain it to somebody who's dumb, aka me, they can't explain it to customers. So some of the best process I've had is like when I meet a startup and I feel like, oh, this is interesting. I usually go on a call and say, do I understand it correctly that you do a cement kiln, which uses, reuses the CO2. And then I just start pitching it to them for like one or two minutes. And this is like the first three minutes of the call. And then usually what happens 80% of the time is they have a great laugh and they say, no, let me tell you how it actually works. They've just had five great minutes. That was great. And then they tell me and now, but they know they also know what I know. So it's way easier for them to actually be able to explain it to me because they know what I know and what I don't know. And in 20% of the cases, they say, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Let me just, these couple of things you didn't mention, which are actually really vital. And then they explain that. And then I say, why are those vital? Because I read that, but I didn't really understand why that was vital. And then they explained it to me. And I was like, oh my God. And then we have this conversation back and forth. And it's like some of the best mentors you have in your life where you like, you have this back and forth conversation. And you feel like, I want to keep talking to you and you're smart and you can explain it to me. And you are super ambitious and super drive then it feels like you have something. And now, the, of course, the second question is, is the market big enough and la, la, la. But those things are fairly Googleable. And then the, the biggest headache you get is, of course, where is the chasm between your ambition and your solution and that market? So like, how do you get customers and like, how do they pay you and stuff? And that's something you can either do, like introducing customers or talking to customers or just looking at the number, current metrics they have. So it sounds very simple, but it isn't, sadly. And one of the biggest headaches in, in the industry and actually in our world is like, it is as if you're walking into the world's largest casino, you're working into like walking into Monte Carlo, you come in there and everybody's playing blackjack around you and you sit down at the table and think, oh, I should bet someone a blackjack, blackjack here. And there's like a pre-seed table, there's a seed table, there's an A table, there's a B table. So like your stakes kind of level. You sit down at the pre-seed table and these people are just like all over the world, they're playing and they've not been vetted before, right? So like the, the further you go, the more they're actually playing blackjack probably. So you sit down and they're flipping up like Texas Hold'em. There are two cards in the middle and there's like a queen and a jack and a tiger. And you're like, what the fuck, what the fuck is there? And then you look at your cards and you're like, I got a duck and a queen. And you're like, I don't know what's... Oh, actually, there are probably not three cards in the middle yet because like now I failed black, uh, uh, Texas Hold'em. But the problem is you have these cards where you look at what, what's a duck? Is that good or bad? And the great thing with our world is like you can listen to these podcasts about how ducks and queens interact. And then you can talk to the founder and saying, so I've got a duck. Is a duck good or bad? There's always a risk of like a Theranos situation where these people tell you the duck is the most valuable card. But a lot of times, what your pressure is about reading people. So it's like, sometimes this is just too good to be true. And you're like, so the, if I have a duck, I always win. 
Like, I'm not sure I want to play this. And our biggest problem is actually that we have 15 meetings, 15 minutes to sit down at this table where people deal us cards. And now we have to decide after seeing two cards plus one card in the middle, should we, would I stay at the table and learn all about ducks? Or should I walk to the next table and hope that the cards are better? And then in a bad day or a good day, depending on what your mood, you have eight of those tables or 10 of those tables. And you come home to, I come home to my wonderful kids and my head is full of ducks and geese and lizards and stuff. And I have like, and then now you have a sorting function. It's like tomorrow I'm going to do one of these things. So then you're like, what was the most memorable? The duck queen combination. That felt really good. Let's bet on that one. So in the evening at 11, I spend some time writing on Slack about the duck geese combination to Heidi Newell and say why I think it's good. And then they flame me and say like, I don't think we should do duck and geese. And we talk about it for a bit. They're like, oh, it's duck and queen guys. I sorry I wrote wrong. I was tired. And in the morning I feel like, do I still want to do duck and queen? And now I feel like if I, if it went through me in the shower in the morning, still being excited about duck and queen, I got to talk to these people again. Because like, it's such a hard thing for me to pull out of that day when people just like, I had too much in my head. My kids don't want to bike that route. Heidi Newell thinks I'm wrong. And then tomorrow, if I'm still excited, God damn, then I should continue. Most days, you just like, you forget about it. You're just like, I don't want to think about this thing anymore. And you now you have to do write a decline email to all of them saying, I'm sorry, we don't have a thesis about geese. Like, we have not read enough about ducks. And these people respond to you like, I spend my life in duck. I can explain it to you. But it's like, I'm sorry, I don't have time to understand ducks. I am talking to a company about lizards, right? I don't have, I'm sorry, ducks, not me, bye. And that's like, you have this horrible situation where you got to know them, you love them, and now you have to tell them that you never want to talk to them again. So it's like, that's the problem. And I think all the people think that VCs are like super intellectual and thinking. The problem is like, you're running around in Monte Carlo and trying to understand about strange cards. Being a zookeeper or trying to be a zookeeper. While your current portfolio is calling you and saying, what should we do with the market's crashing? And you have to be like super intellectual and tell you how the interest rate is going to change in five years. Oh, sounds horrendous. Just quickly before Heather jump back in, you make an interesting point that I don't think I've seen a huge amount of noise around in terms of the working kind of mechanics and the well-being from an investment point of view. You hear a lot about kind of founder well-being and, and all that kind of stuff. But coming home, having spent 150 meetings talking about lizards and queens to three kids, what's that process like for you as a team? And how do you look after yourselves from a team point of view? I think that, I, putting it in perspective, I think that the life as a founder is 100 times as bad. Like, it, I think it's like 100, literally. Like, I think it's technically 100 times as bad. And I think it's three things that makes it worse. I think number one is you can't turn it off. Like, if you're a founder, you can't turn it off. You can't say, I really need a break. As an investor, you can just say, we're not going to invest in stuff. It's probably a worse decision than investing, but we just won't do it. So you can just turn off the faucet and say, I'm out. Which, again, it's probably stupid, but like, you can just preserve your health. Secondly, I think one of the tricky things is that as a fund you don't have a problem at all with identity. Like you go to a cocktail party and somebody says, what do you do? And like, if you're in a, you know, a big city anywhere in the world, or if you're talking to somebody, you say you're a venture fund, you're an angel investor or whatever. They say, aha. If you say, we're building a company that is optimizing steel furnaces. People are like, do you think you can beat like Acryl and Mittal and these people? Like, who do you think you are? I thought you were a nice person. You're just like too cocky now. And like everybody bashes you. And I think these, like that identity problem is really tricky. Like you have, and that I think is actually the worst part of the problem. And then number three is that you're usually the bottleneck for your whole process. So the problem is like, if you actually say I'm stopping, that actually means like everything stops right now. And I think the crazy thing about founders is I think that the stage before product market fit and post product market fit are interesting because before product market fit, when you actually have what, like what the customers wants, you essentially are wondering the value of death and you're a total idiot because like everything you're saying is actually too new or too strange. So like you question your identity and your sanity quite a lot. And then suddenly you get to actually having product market fit. And the definition, if you've done this correctly, is like you are the wrong person in this situation. 
because you're the person that's good at discovering shit. And now suddenly people are pulling the boxes out of your hand and want to buy it. So you feel extremely insufficient. And the problem is you know that you're not the best person, that you know that I'm not the best salesperson or VP engineering or whatever. Like you just, you, definition, you want to hire those people, right? So the problem is that you flip from an area where like, I am probably crazy to being, I'm definitely bad. And the only time you get to a healthy position is like when you're 50 plus people or 100 plus people and you actually can take that first summer leave and you're like, holy shit, the company's not stopping because we have a great COO and a great CEO. But before that, your ass is on the line all the time, your identity is crazy and you're insufficient. So I think that VCs have a super easy time. I'm going to follow on to that hiring side of things. So ducks and queens and lizards, like there are tons of these businesses out there with drive, they're super intelligent, doing good shit, looking to scale and hire. But, you know, going back to the slightly bad and really bad shit, it seems that fintech and crypto markets and fangs of the world are capturing most of the tech workers today with high compensation and equity packages. And while I, and I'm sure we believe every job should be a climate job and hope that they're doing the businesses are doing right by the talent that they attract. How can these smaller ducks and lizards and less competitively cash flowed climate tech companies attract talent in this competitive and potentially volatile market? This is a super tricky question because I think at the end of the day, I think that I think that there's certain it's a certain after I think you're 10, 20, 30 people. I think that at the end of the day, part of what you work with is your mission. But I think part of what you work with is, of course, the compensation. I'll roll back and say one thing. I think that, and I'm Scandinavian, so I really believe that people need a certain level of compensation because otherwise it just, it's just stupid. And I also think that above a certain compensation, I just think it's stupid that people would get it. So there's like some kind of Goldilocks zone of compensation, which feels like it makes sense. And I know that if I was American and I had, you know, kids going to college, I would just say there's no Goldilocks zone because like, you know, the more money I have, the better college I can send them to, Right. So if you live in a country which has like, you know, somewhat of an anti-capitalistic bent as the Scandinavia, then I think that then it makes sense. Then it just goes, you know, do you want to you know, work at a soda company making sugar water or do you want to build bicycles for the mind? You're just like, I want to work with good stuff. and That's what I want to do. And then you know that, hey, if you work for one of the fangs, you're probably going to twice as compensation, but your tax is so high that you're going to get a bit higher compensation. So then hopefully I think that people will choose the right thing. And also I do think that some of these companies, I think that, I'm super happy that Netflix exists and that Spotify exists and a lot of these things. I I love reading an awesome, great book, right? So some of these things, they're not contributing to the world in many things. So for me, some of these products are kind of needed. But getting back to your question, I think it is a thing where you end up attracting people who really want to do it. And I think that there's no solution out of that, apart from the fact that I think that some of the amazing people I meet, they choose to work, work at these companies anyway. And I think that's the thing where it's almost the reason where I'm not super worried about that topic is actually almost none of our companies like have a really crazy bad situation of hiring. They all have different, they're, they're all hiring. That's the problem. It's like everybody's hiring, everybody's looking for talent. But I would say none of them have a situation where they just can't hire. So, I mean, we have companies that are super crazy specialists and are competing with Facebook for hiring for machine learning people. And Facebook pays them a million dollars per year level plus. Well, they pay them way more than that actually. And these people hire them for kind of fairly, you know, normal salaries. And they these people take the job. I think people just as I think we could have been Heidi Uli, we could have been fintech investors, and we would have been probably making a lot more money. But I think that for us, it's like, you know, we want to go up and like wake up every day and feel like I'm excited about this shit. And I think that most people are like that. So I would say 
that it has been less of a problem than I would have thought, actually. That's really good to hear. And I was just thinking as well, you know, hopefully I'm one of those people and, you know, I don't, I wouldn't follow the money I'm following, trying to do do good shit and, and try and have an impact. But hopefully some of those people that do get into these other companies that do have that passion are able to make the change from the inside and, and blossom it, but as well. I think, I think at, at the same time, I think that the dynamic of a startup, that's what I mean, like it's very different with the 10, 21st people because the 10, 21st people, they got ESOPs, like options, like uh, employee stock options. And like, if you believe that we need to kind of curb climate change and make new steel and new cement and suck down carbon from the sky and transport goods without emissions, whatever, you look at these companies and say, these companies are going to be way more valuable than some of these other things, right? And then you realize, oh my God, I actually have 2% of that company. And you're like, holy shit, this could be like bigger Sally than I could ever get, right? So I would say, and then the other thing, I think that depending on your age, I think that there's a certain time of your life where like when you're between, I don't know, 15 to 30-ish, then it feels like the biggest thing in your life is actually meeting awesome people and learning. And like, of course, you're not going to go below a certain compensation because then you're pretty stupid. But also like, do you need to maximize your salary? And I think that that's the thing is I think that you find that working for these companies is actually where you meet some of the most awesome people because they come there passionate every day and they're super happy to, to kind of talk about hard topics. Whereas I think if you go and work for whatever, uh, I mean, I have a friend who works completely remotely for a crypto company. And when I ask him how life is, he's like, yeah, I mean, I kind of work in a basement, commit code and I, I make a lot of money and that's what it is. Right. And I think he, and he's super fine. He's super happy with it. He says like, I get to spend time with kids. I think it's great. And like, it's okay. He can do that, right? But if you ask if he's passionate for his job, it's like, no, I just happen to be very good at one of the crypto protocols and I build stuff for them. And I think that's fine. And he, he's fine. And he's not a crypto ideologist. That's the funny thing about him. If you ask him, like, what do you think about like, Bitcoin or ETH or whatever? He says, like, I don't really have opinions. Like, I don't even own stuff. I just like, I'm a coder. And I, I mean, I get compensated for what I can do. So kind of taking a step back from some of the detail that we talked about so far, going back to your investment process as a team and talking to all the geese and ducks and lizards and the rest of the zoo, apart from looking at uh, kind of entrepreneurs or startups that are climate focused or teams or, or kind of ideas that you'd be proud to work with or support, what attributes do you look for in an, a prospective investee? And what's that kind of process of going from first 15 minute conversation to money in the bank and off you so it's slightly different for Heidi and me, but we're on the scale here. But I think that all of us, if you zoom out, for us, it is really people multiplied by market is the way I would explain it. So for me, it is really about like, do I really like these people? Do I think they're smart, hardworking, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I think the second thing is like, how big is the market, both in terms of money and in terms of climate? And then the third part is that bridge between them. How do you actually get from the people's ambition to the market? So for me, I think that, I always view the world as essentially clarity of thought. So like what I mean by that is like I talk to the founders. So like I've read the deck, I look at what they do, and then I talk to them, I said like, you know, what do you do? Or like I start, as you said before, I like I start I start explaining what I think they do. And then in the best of cases, they're able to explain to me in a way where A, I like them afterwards, they like me afterwards, which is if you've ever tried explaining a hard topic to somebody who's very stressed, is very hard, right? And then B, I actually get it. So like the best conversations I've had is like going to a meeting and I said like, so you make steel in this blah, 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 blah way. And the founder's like, no. Do you know what an arc furnace is? And I'm like, no. Okay. Do you know anything about steel? I'm like, not really. It's like iron and carbon dioxide. 
is like, yeah, okay, okay. It's iron and other things, right? Okay, and then you melt them and you take out something and you need a good blend. It's like baking a bread. And I'm like, okay, in what way? And now this amazing founder says like, what if you baked the bread and you didn't have the right amount of flour and yeast and everything? I'm like, oh, that would be a shit bread. Yeah, exactly. What if the temperature in the oven is too high? I'd be like, that would be a shit bread. Exactly. What if that oven is a thousand degrees and there's no thermostat in it? Because no thermostat lasts a thousand degrees. I'm like, oh, then I would be baking breads blindly. Exactly. Oh, shit, is that how you make steel? Exactly. So the problem is, like, you whip up a dough and batter because of something that you were told 20 years ago, and you put them in an oven, which is 1,000 degrees, you close the thing, and you watch it from the outside, and because you've done this for 30 years, then you come out and take out the bread, and then you serve it for people. And you don't want to close to the oven in the meantime, because then you need to wear a rubber suit. Okay, shit, that sounds really stupid. Yeah, it's, it's really dumb. And that's how we've done it for the last 50 years. Oh, and what do you do? Oh, so what we do? And then he tells you what they do. And you're like, oh, my God, that's so smart. But then how do you get the data? No, I lived in a rubber suit for six months. Oh, shit, you did. Yes, exactly. And everybody thought I was stupid. And I was really stupid. I lost a lot of weight. And like, you just end up talking to people like, wow, that's a fascinating story. You're a nice person. You're smart. You're and like, you, you, like, you're able to explain to me. And I mean, when I say smart, again, smart doesn't mean like you can crack mathematical equations. It's just like you can navigate the unknown and they can navigate me and like my suddenly interruptive tangents and like strange metaphors. And I feel like, like, I like this person. They're able to explain to me and it's good. And I think this is a big problem. And this happens in the first or second meeting usually. Then essentially, we essentially then have a friction process where I try to pitch Heidi Newell about why I like this. And then that process can take a day. It can take a week, whatever. And then you get to a point where you now have to put all this into, squeeze it into process. And that can actually be done completely post-fact. So we can end up investing. And then like now we just have to glue all this thin thing into process so we're actually compliant and actually we have to document stuff. And that documentation process is really good. Because when you start document that process, we're like, you know, what is their diversity policy? And you're like, ah, shit, I was so excited about steel that I forgot asking all about diversity. Oh, good, good, good question. And then I have to ping the founder. And what I do is I add all people on WhatsApp. So I just tell them, add me on, and that's actually, I said to them, add me on WhatsApp. And I give them my number on the Zoom call. So they just have my phone number. And literally, like for me, one thing here is like, if they don't add me on WhatsApp within two days, I think it's probably like, I'm not going to do it. Because why are they not adding me on WhatsApp? And then the second the admin WhatsApp, I'm like super chatty. I just talk to them and just like send voices messages and like type stuff. If they respond with like blocks of texts, hey, like I'm just trying to respond quickly, right? This is not going to work. Like I don't think that we have the right interaction style. And it's not about them being right. This is about like dating. Like if you're meeting a person and you're like, hey, I want to chat with you. And you're like, yeah, talk to my EA. You'll be like, okay, I don't want to date you anymore. So I think this is the magical thing. It's like I have to not only love them and the market, I actually have to be able to, you know, have play jazz with them. The only thing that's strange sometimes is you meet a company where I say, or one of us says, I mean, one of us says, I really want us to do this company, but I don't think I'm the right jazz player for these people. The pace is not there. I don't have it. And then now we have this very strange, like hot potato thing that happens. Like I pitched them to Heidi and you, and it's like, you want to talk to these people. And I really want us to miss this company, but I don't. Like, I don't want to lead this thing. And that's the only complications. We have some companies we talk to every week, I would say, like we all wished someone else did here. And we try to help the founders. And then sometimes we get to a point where like, we're not going to do it. And then we just end up pitching them to other funds and said like, we love these founders. We think it's super cool, but electricity markets, oh, it's not our thing. Like we just like, we don't get it. We, but it's obviously great. I mean, they make a lot of money and it's good people, but like, we just don't get this market. And I think that's what we try to do. And then a lot of, a lot of like a vast majority, like 99%, we just try to write a polite, no, thank you. It's not us mail too. 
that's really cool that you just, you tried to help them no matter what. If the dating doesn't work out between you two, you try to find them another partner, which is, which is pretty awesome. I was going to say, I think the analogy would probably like, you're meeting a person on a date and they say, I really, really wish I could get this awesome job and work at this place, right? And you realize after dating them that you, this is not your partner. Like you don't want to date them, but you actually know somebody who works there. So you'd be like, okay, it's going to be a really awkward, but like, I don't think we're made for each other, but hey, I can introduce this person who works at hiring manager at company and please don't hate me like as a person. I'm like, no, I don't hate you. Thank you a lot for the intro. And like, they're going to be, you know, we're going to like each other, but it's not us. Like it's, uh, so I think it's really thinking about, I think that's the great thing. I think investing is a strange combo of dating and real estate and writing a master thesis. So like you have to flip yourself your mind between those three. Like so in the conversation, you have to be like, you have to try to understand some of this master thesis. And they wrote about indigenous populations in salt lakes. And you're like, I don't understand anything you're saying. This is like the ducks and geese part. You're like, I don't really understand like salt lakes. What is a salt lake, right? So, but that is like just purely trying to understand what they're saying. And you have a dating perspective, which is like, I like having this conversation. I like you. It's like, we're having fun. It's like, you're smart. You're teaching me something. It's, it's like, you know, this is good. And then you have a purely transactional part, which is just like, I like you. I like your master thesis. But like, it's not us, right? Like, I don't like you love. And now the thing is, it's real estate. So I can just say, someone else should invest in you. And then I can help you because I like you. But then you have conversations where it's like, the real estate part is like, I wish we invested, but I don't like you that much. And now I don't want to do it, right? I don't want to invest in something I don't like. So like, it's funny because all of these three, I think one of the hard parts of raising money from a founder and from being an investor is you have to flip your mind between these three things during the conversation sometimes. Because like, if you're being the super nice dating person, where they're saying, yeah, so then we're raising, you know, $5 million on $50 million post. You're like, holy shit, no, you can't raise $5 million on 50 on this one. And but like the dating part of you is like, I love these people, I want them to succeed, right? But the real estate part of you is like, this is not an apartment in New York. I mean, you have an apartment in Bratislava, for God's sake. This is not, like, you don't have that value. You can't do like five on 50. So like, you have to flip between these things in the conversations with the founders and trying to figure out in a friendly, nice manner. It's like, I'm your friendly real estate agent. You're never going to get this thing sold for $5 million. And I'm your friend. Like, I want you to succeed. So sometimes they end up saying, we had a company just a couple of weeks ago where I said, I really think you should do this round. If you're doing two on 20, I think we can do it. If you're raising five on 50, we're not the right ones, but I'm super happy to pitch other people you because I think what you're doing is great. And everybody asked me, like, why didn't you invest? I just said, I think five on 50 is just crazy valuation for what they're doing. But I mean, I, I think it's a great company. It could probably succeed, right? But I, we just found the valuation too high. But here, you can have our, our documentation where we thought it was great. And this is what they're doing, right? And we're super happy about it. But it's just like, they're selling an apartment in Bratislava for the price of an apartment in New York. And yeah, we just don't think it's correctly priced. Uh, and if people, the problem is like, if people ask you about the dating aspects, the problem is like, somebody says, hey, I just met your ex. Are they a good person? You're like, I mean, the person is my ex. So like, there's a reason the person is my ex, right? And then it's probably the point when you don't want to be a reference. You're like, well, have you stayed at their house? You met the cat? They love the cat more than you? So like, that's when it gets complicated, right? <laughs> I love it so much. So what about like, when you are vibing, when the chemistry is right, and you do decide to invest? What is your portfolio management? What's your development process look like after you've kind of made that that jump in and you haven't, you haven't introduced them to someone else? No, total chaos. So maybe that's just because I'm total chaos. But I think that what we do is like, we essentially, we have them on WhatsApp. We had a pooled uh, Slack for all of the founders that we invested in. And then we set up biweekly meetings with all of them, individually, I mean. So like, you know, I talk to the company I invested in and the founders uh, every second week. And then they have me on WhatsApp. They have me on Slack. And now they can just ping me and say, hey, can you talk today? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, here are my times. Just book me. Let's talk, right? And this can happen like 
I mean, I have one company I've talked to almost every second day for three months. And like, I usually ping them jokingly at 11 p.m. and said, you haven't talked, you haven't called me today, so I guess you're dead. And then they smile and say, I'm sorry, we're still working. We can ping you later today if you want. And like, we have this great, like, you know, great style where it's like, oh, shit, they're not calling me. I guess like this must be the busy day or a very slow day. But it's great. I don't think there is a way of saying this is how we manage a relationship. It is just like, I view myself as the kind of absent-minded, absent-minded, like, you know, intern or, or whatever. So like, I can't think about them all the time, right? Because like, I'm working with, you know, 20 plus companies, but they're in the back of my mind. So like somebody I'm at an event and somebody says, hey, yeah, we're working with this new seminar thing. I'm like, oh shit, have you talked to this company? I'm like, no, oh no, we invest them. They're awesome people. Or we didn't invest them, but they're awesome people. Do you want to talk to them? So like people are always back in your mind. But then they suddenly these people ping and say, hey, can I talk? Can you talk like now? And then you just, you walk out and like, or you just answer them. Now is really, really tricky. Can I call you in half an hour? Like I'm having dinner with my family or whatever. And then like they say, no, sorry, it's crisis. And you have to like, I'm sorry, I have to do this call. And you walk out and you do the call with them. And I think that we're just trying to build a relationship where they know who we are. Because I think that at the same time, what I mean, why I'm saying as our absent-minded interns is like the founders thinking about their business all the time, right? All the time. So they know all the problems. So we try to remind them that I don't actually remember exactly what the problem is this week. So they have to go like, oh, so this is a problem. Oh, sorry, sorry. And Josh is, yeah, yeah he's the CEO. Oh, no, no, Josh is the CEO of the company. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Because of course, I ha- it's not top of our mind, right? But then the second part, if somebody comes and sends us spreadsheets, it's like, how do we model finance for this company? I've realized like I'm the intern. Like I'm not a specialist on cement, you know, refinancing. But like I can be sane and read it and say like, but what I usually do most of the time is like, I know a person that's really good at this. Should I introduce you? The thing we're trying to, and of course we try to read it, like we're trying to be like as smart as we can and we try to like give uh, as much value as we can. But a lot of times it's really being there and knowing who knows. So for example, two founders in the portfolio that like recently said they needed mentors and like they asked me to like be more mentor to them. I just said, I don't think I'm the best mentor for you. I know a person who I think is the best mentor. And both of them were just saying, ah, I don't think this is the right way. I think, and I was like, please talk to this person. I really think it's a great idea. And then they said, look at the price. And I'm like, holy shit, this is expensive. I said, do one call. Like do one call. This person does one call for free. Yesterday, one of the founders called me and she was like, I just can't express the gratitude that you forced me to talk to this person. Like, it's super expensive, it's super irritating, but it's life-changing. Thank you very much for that. And I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. What else do you want to say? That was it. Thank you very much. I'm going to hang up now. And then she hung up. And it was like, I was just so happy. It was like, great. Like, it helped, right? And it was like, I just felt that you're probably much. And you know, as all time, 50% of the time, they say, I did the call. The person couldn't help with some spreadsheet. I was like, okay. Too bad. Cost you 15 minutes. Awesome. Kind of wrapping up, as I know we've only got your time for a short amount of time left. You've kind of touched on cement, you've touched on steel, you've touched on some other kind of topics. Can you give us a quick run through the portfolio so far and any kind of jump out teams that you want to kind of touch on that you've worked with? Yeah. So, I mean, all teams are amazing. It's always tricky to say, like, which are your favorite kid? But I would say, like, now I picked subjects that were very easy to explain for, like, climate audience. But I would actually say the thing that I find most fascinating is that most of the things we're working on are things that it might take 10 seconds to realize the climate angle. So, like, the reason I said steel and cement is because they're so extreme obvious what the problem is. I think that some of the exciting ones are, like, we invest in a company that is, like, an educational platform for agriculturists to move to regenerative farming. And, like, when you hear about it, you're like, oh, ah. We invest in a company that takes seaweed and they turn it into essentially canned tuna in a process which is amazing. And the cool thing about that is, and it becomes like tuna, like you have it, and you're like, holy shit, they gave us tuna. But the cool thing about it is that seaweed sucks down carbon from the sky and it creates a lot of local jobs. And when you 
slaughter tuna. You have like ponies in the ocean that you drag up on fridges that are run on fossil fuels that are running with an f- open lid in the middle of the ocean. And also tuna contains a lot of mercury and stuff. So like tuna is just bad for everybody, including the tuna and the world and you. And then seaweed contains full omega-3, fatty acids, B vitamin, like all, everything, if it's treated correctly. So that's like just like they just replaced it with a better product, right? And then everything from that to like B2B recycling for plastics. We've done an electric airplane. We've done climate risks for real estate. We've done transportation of goods, like different way of electrifying fleets. We've done forest fire risks and forest fires prevention and looking at how you plant grids. We have done a company that designs new crops. So essentially designs new tomatoes and potatoes and carrots and whatever you want that are more climate friendly and can be grown in vertical farms in different ways. We invest in companies that work with optimizing cold storage. So like how you actually have stuff in freezers, but use less energy. We invest in companies that optimize the energy for steel. We invest in companies that make fossil-free 401ks, so pension plans. We invested in companies that actually bind carbon in a better way in a process. So actually like carbon is actually kept down in the ground. We invest in the companies that help on figuring out supply chain for products when you buy them. So when people design products, they can figure out what's going on with them. We invest in a subscription company for clothes, so you can actually subscribe to clothes. And then, like, it, and actually, it's only overstock, so it's actually clothes that were actually from a fast fashion company before. We invested in an electrical bus company that is actually a literal bus company, which is in Edinburgh. So, like, you can take the electrical bus, and it's like it's a bus. You drive from one point to another. It's a bus. Nothing strange, but it's completely electric. Yeah, we invested in quite a lot of different companies. And the cool thing is that when you start looking at it, it seems like there's no pattern. But then you realize the pattern is all of these are planet positive and awesome people that are bridging the gap between that crazy idea and actually solving a big climate problem. And some of these problems, like you have to think a couple of seconds to kind of calculate the CO2 equivalent. But a lot of them are just like, you see it, you just like, yeah, 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 I get it. Like, I get it. Like, this is a really intensive process and I can make it better. Everyone should check out all of your your portfolio companies. But just going to wrap us up here. Uh, as much as I would love to carry on this conversation through the entire rest of the day, is there anything else <laughs> you want to add about Pale Blue Dot for founders? What's your investment range, minimum ticket? How do people get in touch with you and, and the team? Yeah. So ticket-wise, we typically do from kind of 500K to a million euros, pounds, dollars. And we our goal is to get to, have, to spend in total a million for 10%. So typically the people who come to us and say, we're raising $5 million, it's like too late because we don't want you to have 50% dilution. The people can say like, we're raising 100K. We're like, it's a bit early. Like you could probably talk to some angels for that 100K. If you're raising 500 to kind of 1.5 or 2.5 million euros, pounds, dollars, like I would say like you're 500K to 2.5, you can talk to us. And the 500K, we might say it's a bit early. We could maybe do it, but then our goal is to then do the next round as well. Well, potentially, it depends on like how the company, if it's like what how the company looks and feels as like uh, cost wise. But I think at most of the time, our favorite is like we invest in the company where they're raising eight hundred thousand to one point five million dollars, and then we only lead or co-lead. So like if somebody comes to us and says there's a small piece left, we're just like not for us. But we're happy if they say we're raising two million. We have somebody we really love as the lead. Uh, but you want to join us, then we're going to end up looking at who that lead is and talking to them and figuring out if we want the same thing for these people. And if we have an agreement about what the ambition is, like the, the founder is one problem, but there's the other problem is, of course, the other investor we have to figure out if, is like, do you want that person as a co-parent, essentially? And you figure out, yeah, we like those people. We definitely want to invest in them. They seem like they have the right way of looking at the world. Then we are happy to join those conversations as well. And I think people should just, I'm totally fine with talking to people that are a bit too early to say, I'm thinking about going to climate. I want to do this and that. But just then people have to really understand the problem is that we get lots of those requests. And the problem is like how 
we are answering that in a polite way because we tend to respond all emails we get. And the problem is like sometimes people give us like a super angry, yeah, I heard you on a podcast. You said you would respond to everybody and like allow people to talk to you about their idea. And I send you my idea. And then usually I respond to them nicely. Yeah, but what you send me was like, you know, 40 pages. And can you send me something which is the size of an iPhone screen? So I can like read it while I'm trying to get a kid to sleep or when I'm in the bathroom or trying to change my clothes when I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, so you don't really care. And like, I, I do care. The problem is that there are another 8,000 people that care today. So if you just make it really easy for me to figure out how to help you, that's easiest. And then, then we like, you know, reach out, try. And if you don't get an answer from somebody, well, try to figure out a way. Make it easy for people to help you is usually what I say. So if somebody, for example, what I tell the people, if you see that I'm connected to someone on LinkedIn and you want to talk to that person, some of the easiest ways you send me an email, which is, hey, I want to talk to this person, yada, yada, yada. And I'm going to send you another email. And that email, you can just forward to them. So then I read the email that you sent to me. I read it and I'm like, okay, you're a legit person. I like you. And I see you know this person. I'm like, you're not a crazy person. Or I don't know anybody that you know, but like I read the email and I feel like, okay, you seem to be okay. And then you see me another email, which is super easy to forward. And I can just forward that email to a person who says, I haven't actually talked to them, but, it, but, but I've had some interaction. They seem to be legit. Or like I can say, I'm not going to forward this because I haven't talked to you. So like, I'm going to figure out something. And I'm sorry, I don't have time for two weeks. And I'm not a douche, but I'm really trying. But I would say that like, you not reaching out or not trying is probably the stupidest thing. And like adding people on LinkedIn is not a way of reaching out. That's the mechanical way or following people or whatever. That's a mechanical way of living. So like you could follow us on Twitter. You can see and pebble.twitter, we share like what we think for real. My personal Twitter is like what happens to me in my brain at the moment. And you know, that gives you the full perspective of the planet. Awesome. Okay. Well, we'll put links to Hampus's Twitter, the team's Twitter, Pale Blue Dot, everything else in the description. And if you have any thoughts or queries, you know where to find us online. And if you want to contact Hampus through us, we'll see what we can do. So feel free to drop us a line as well and we'll, we'll see what we can do. And uh, thank you, Hampus, for the time. It has been incredible. And I'm sad that we've only had an hour. It could have gone on for much longer. It was great. Thanks a lot for the great questions. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. For information about Meta and the work we our do, website, meta.partners, there you'll be able to find links to our blog, the company LinkedIn page, and more information about the team. If you have any questions about today's episode or suggestions for future shows, our Twitter handle is metatalks, all in one word. And you'll also be able to find the team and all sorts of exciting things we're up to on there. We'll be back with a new episode of the podcast next week. Until then, stay well and stay in touch.